Hello, welcome to the Charity Impact Podcast, where we aim to help you increase your charity's income and impact by sharing the experience and expertise of our guests. We love to hear from our listeners, so please do rate and review in your podcast player or get in touch on LinkedIn and Twitter, either on the podcast page or with me personally. I'm Alex Blake, your podcast host, and I'm joined today by Zara Hedges, CEO of Winning Scotland. So welcome to the podcast, Zara. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Great. Thanks for coming on. This is your first CEO role. You've been in post for a couple of years now. Before we start to kind of hear about what your experience has been, do you want to just give us a a brief intro to Win in Scotland? Just like what are the issues you're tackling? What's sort of the general size of the organisation, like roughly annual income, size of team, etc.? Okay, so Winning Scotland is a national charity. The clue is in the name. We work uh, primarily for the benefit of, of Scotland and in particular our children and young people. Our mission is to create a culture change in Scotland really and to help children and young people to become more confident and more resilient. We do that in lots of different ways. We are a small team. We have nine people who work with us at the moment and two of those are working on a particular project so six or seven core members of staff but we do work all over the country and we impact about half a million young people because we work with the adults who are most influential so for a children's charity we're fairly unusual in that we don't work with children we recognize that we can have more impact if we support the adults who are already in children's lives and support them and build their capacity and For example, we do a lot of work with teachers. So if we have a teacher who comes on one of our learning programs, which is a full year accredited master's level program, then the children in her or his class get the benefit this year and then next year and then the year after. And the idea with our programs, because they are usually of a substantial length, it's our ambition that when someone finishes learning with us, that's really only the start of their journey. And that when we go back in three years time and ask them, their practice is even more developed than it has been rather than, oh, I went on a training, I had a nice day and I had a nice lunch. So that gives a a clue to some of the stuff that we do. A lot of it is training and professional development for teachers, for residential care workers, for social workers. We first started working with sports coaches. Our founder was a a businessman and a, a keen sportsman, and he felt that a lot of the reasons he was successful in his life were things he'd learned on the sports field. So trying to get those benefits out to kids who may or may not be engaging in, in sport as much as he was. And we also do work with other people in the community who might have a ben- might be able to benefit young people. We also have a strand of our work which is around influencing and doing our best to share that the knowledge we have from young people and from teachers to change the system One of the things when I talk about helping kids to be more resilient, that doesn't mean that I accept the world the way it is. There's an argument to be had that we should try to make the world better so that our young people don't have to be quite so resilient. Mm. So we look at, for example, in education, we've got an awful lot of knowledge gathered over the years. So we look at having conversations with people, whether it's in government, whether it's in local authorities, about the way that their systems are and if that is if they're designed to bring the best out of young people and their teachers or whether it's actually mitigating some of the positive things that we're trying to do. So we work in sport, education, communities. We have a, a big project, not even a project, it's a a way of life um, that we are working on at the moment called Planet Youth, which is based on something called the Icelandic Primary Prevention Model. 
it's huge. Um, it has the potential to be huge. At the moment, we are t- trialling it with five different areas in Scotland. But to put a very long story short, instead of expecting kids to just say no to drugs, alcohol and other risky behaviour, you look at the environment around young people, what it is about certain environments that makes young people likely to make better decisions and, and ones which are riskier. And then you try to focus on right, how can we change the environment now for our 11 and 12 year olds? So by the time they get to 15 and 16 and we're talking to them, they're actually not drinking so early. They're not drinking so much. And then eventually you want to replicate what happened in Iceland. That's why it's sometimes referred to as the Iceland project, because in Iceland, they went from having kids drinking and taking drugs very young and quite a lot to over a period, actually, Icelandic teens are now the cleanest living teens in Europe. And if we could replicate something like that in Scotland, it'd be wonderful. Our turnover is in the region of half a million pounds. Um, We have been a much bigger organisation in the past. We used to do a lot of delivery ourselves and consciously made the decision before I started that we were not going to be a delivery organisation. So we cut the team right down when various projects finished and now we work in partnership. So everything that we do now we look at who's the best placed organisation to support us. So early years, for example, we'd been working in primary and secondary schools for ages, hadn't done much in early years. I could see that there was a huge benefit from what we were trying to do. So we approached Early Years Scotland. They are really well recognised in the sector. And we said, this is what we do. We love what you do. Is there something that we can work on together? And we co-designed and developed a course for Early Years Practitioners. We've bought the the bit that we know and they have access to the the teachers. So it means that we're able to get to lots of early years practitioners without having to then feed the beast of having a a charity where you're basically just trying to bring income in for projects. So our role as a a catalyst for change, a bit of a think tank, our chairman calls as an action-focused think tank, plant lots of seeds. We look at what's working globally and then we see how can we bring that to Scotland? How can we make that practical and then how can we scale or spread it? Yeah, and you mentioned income there. I was just curious as I was listening to you, what your sort of income mix might look like. Because I know sometimes when I've worked before with charities supporting children or, you know, looking the ultimate outcome is being for children, working primarily with adults, whether that's kind of professionals or parents. Sometimes that then being a challenge in terms of securing funding, because lots of funders are like, oh, well, support projects that are working directly with children and kind of see those sorts of organisations a step removed. So is that something you've come across? And like, what's your funding mix? Because maybe it's not relevant in how you're funded. That is really relevant for us. And interestingly, increasingly relevant, that point about we're not working directly with children and young people. And I think it's partly because the landscape is changing insofar as money is tighter for some people. So some of the funders that we were going to before are having to stretch their pots further than they've had to in the past and they're trying to prioritise. I absolutely see that there is a huge need at the moment for urgent support for children and young people, direct delivery children and young people. So I'm not even here to say that that's not where the money should be spent. I think that as a society, we've got people who are not even making their basic needs. However, the work that we do is more upstream and it's about prevention. And our funding approach since I started with Winning Scotland has been to try and really introduce relationship-based fundraising. And we don't need everybody to give us money. We don't. We just need to find the people who believe in what we do. And we are fortunate in that because we've been quite clear on what we do, 
it's almost like a filter both ways in a way. Funders want to filter out the organisations that don't match with them, but we also want to f- um, filter out the ones that aren't going to, to buy into what we do. We have a really diverse funding mix and quite um, strategically so. So every pot that a charity in Scotland can take money from, we do. So we have some income from training that we provide to corporate partners in return for for sponsorship. So that's sort of trading income. We also trade with local authorities who pay pay for teachers to come on our courses. Um, We also have obviously project income for some of the things that we're trialling. We might go to like your Garfield Westons or, or your lottery for project specific income. And we have high net worth individuals or not even high net worth individuals, individuals who support us on our journey and that gives us the the balance of funding that we need so that we've got a pipeline that we work with because we are trying to a lot of the things that we do do won't always work but we're in that kind of research and innovation phase so we have support from people who are willing to let us play in that sandbox of well what's the evidence saying what's the research what do we still need to do so that's often the individuals who support us in that innovation space And then when you've got an idea that you think, right, this is something that could work, then we can go to a a funder, like a a grant funder, a trust or foundation and say, here's what we think. Can we pilot it? And and quite often we're successful because of our track record and because of the partners, the calibre of the partners that we pull in. We'll get funding for that. And then often we can go to market and say, right, here you go. Here's the thing that we've designed and developed. Do you want to pay for it? So, yes, we do find that people don't want to fund our work because it's one step removed from children young people but as a parent as someone who works with young people I know that kids do what we do not what we say so if we are trying to genuinely change things for our young people I think we have to do both and what I don't like is when charities are pitted against each other because actually we need both we need to help kids directly where they are now and we also need to be trying to see what can we do now so that in a few years time kids aren't struggling in the same way that they are now yeah so for example, something like that kind of Iceland project, because I can't remember the proper name for it. If you kind of demonstrate that that works well, then the idea is then that you you would then go to government to roll that out further or you would charge individual local authorities or something like that to try and roll it out. Interestingly, with that one in particular, we see our role as quite specific as facilitating the pilot phase. Scottish Government have invested this year, which is really exciting, where it's enabling us to build a bit of capacity locally. That particular project, as with a lot of projects actually that work, and it's not even a project, I keep coming back to that, they work because the responsibility is held locally. So with that project, our role for the next, I don't know if it's going to be two years or five years, it's to, to do that working out what do we have to do to that model that's worked in Iceland and is now in 30 different countries what do we have to do to make it work here in Scotland and once we've got that actually it's probably not going to sit best with winning Scotland it might work with one of the big national agencies it might end up being a charity in its own right it might be something that we extend to do but we're really clear that with any change that we're trying to make any impact that we're trying to have our role will be quite what what's the what's the value that we add what's the value that we add now and if we can't answer that question, then probably it's not for us. So at Planet Youth, which is the Iceland project, that's never going to be an income generator. But what you'd want is for everyone to buy into 
this is the way we want to raise our children. And then people who find money, because there's, there is money in the system. There is money being spent on sports clubs for kids. There is money being spent on schools. And actually, it's about how can we look at the money that we're spending already and spend that rather than historically, this is how we've always done it, to what do our young people need? And in answer to the other kind of work that we do, once something is proven, then really winning Scotland shouldn't really be doing it anymore. It should be going to someone else who's got the infrastructure to be able to deliver it. So, for example, with our sports work that we did for the first six or seven years, that is now, and that was about saying to sports coaches, right, you have these young people in front of you for one, two, three, five hours a week, depending on how keen they are on your sport. What else can you be teaching them about life skills, about resilience, about teamwork, about collaboration? What kind of role model are you being? Because if we started almost 20 years ago, you'd have coaches and parents shouting at the children on the sidelines. You'd have them encouraging bad sportsman-like behaviour. You'd have, it's interesting because we asked parents, why do you think your kid does taekwondo, football, whatever it is? And the parents would say, oh, they they do it because they want to win. And we asked the kids and kids gave us 11 reasons and winning was like number eight. So we were trying to help coaches and parents of kids who do sport to see the wider benefit. And that was a really useful project. And now the components of that that made it successful have been integrated by the Scottish Football Association, Scottish Rugby and Sports Scotland, which is our national agency for sport here, into the things that they do with their coaches anyway. So in terms of legacy and sustainability, we don't need it to be a winning Scotland project anymore. We don't really care what the name is. We just want to to know about the learning that we had of what works, is that now being used in lots of different places? So, yeah, I went off, off topic a little bit there, but it, it's I, th- I think that's something I like about winning Scotland. I've always said I like the fact that we're small because I wouldn't want lots of people's mortgages on my conscience. And I think when you have a big delivery organisation, which is needed, like big delivery organisations are needed, but then you're constantly just trying to, to get money in to keep your lights on and and that's not sort of my comfort zone at all yeah there there is a need for the large delivery organizations but i think there's a sort of uncomfortable space that charities can often get into where it's like that's not what you are but that's kind of what you're trying to be so often you see like charities maybe in that sort of half a million to a million pound sort of size or maybe up to a couple of million where they're not a large delivery organisation like, say, maybe Barnardo's is where you've got a set of services that you deliver in all all different parts of the country and that's what you do and that works at that sort of scale. But actually, if you're like a win in Scotland and you're doing some of that, trying new stuff out, some of the influencing and things like that, and you're doing some delivery stuff, yeah, as you say, all you're doing is then just always kind of chasing your tail to keep getting the money in to deliver something new and then you know something ends because the run funding runs out there's a different funding opportunity so you start something else new yeah you're not any of those things you're not the kind of action focused think tank type of organization and you're not the big delivery organization you're just trying to do a bit of everything and you're just in survival mode and i don't think that lends itself to having the most impact you can have and that's, we, we're really mindful of that and we have a, a program life cycle that one of my colleagues developed and Everything we do should fit into one of those slots. And in order to move from, for example, the kind of the research phase into the piloting phase, there's questions. And it's not black and white because there's some things that, you know, we might have five boxes and ideally it will tick all of those boxes. So do we have a partner identified? Do we think this is fundable? Whether it's fundable by a trust or whether the market is going to pay for it, is there going to be some money in it? 
to make it happen. Um, do we think this is going to have a broad and um, shallow impact or do we think it's going to have a narrow and deep impact? And it's not that any one of those questions is the right or wrong answer, but it gives us a picture of are we the right people to be doing this at this point? We're developing an impact framework just now with an organisation called the Charity Spark, which I'm really excited about because between the, the programme lifecycle and the impact framework, we should be able to lift up anything that comes our way. And we do get asked a lot of things. See, because we've got a good reputation, particularly among our local authority partners, often we'll get people saying to us this is the problem that we're facing do you think you can help and it's so tempting to be like yes because they're saying they can pay us a wee bit of money to do it or it's something that we think is really valuable and it's really hard to say no we can and and we have done that and sometimes it pays off so we had been asked a couple of years ago about employability so for those young people who are leaving school without a, a fixed destination and how because a lot of our work is around mindset, how we can support them to look at the future as a, as a positive thing that they had control of and that they had strategies and tools and techniques to be able to handle the future. And we were also having conversations with colleges and universities about how the people that they were seeing were lacking confidence. And if this, the university had arranged, for example, a, a networking session for the young people, a lot of them were dropping out at the last minute and it came down to like, being afraid of, of how to use that room. And then I was, because of my background in business, having conversation with businesses that were saying, we are getting these young graduates in and they've got all the technical skills, but they don't know how to, to work, like to, to be in a workforce. And this is broad brush strokes. Like I, I'm not saying all young people, but there was definitely a need there and actually, it's taken us two years to figure out what's the role that we can play. And it would have been really easy in the beginning to say, yes, we can do that because we want to. And we waited until all the things that we felt needed to be in place. We kept having conversations. And eventually now we've managed to, again, one of our private supporters has said, yeah, I'll give you a bit of money. Go and scope it out. Go and see what, what the thing is. So, um, And my board are great for that, actually, because they know I, I go in and I've got, right, we're not going to do anything else new for the rest of the year. And then the next board meeting, I'm like, but there's this idea and there's that idea. So so keeping that focus on, is it us now? What can we do? And because that, I think, makes us able to keep to what it is where we add the value. But it's a constant balance, a constant tightrope. Yeah, uh, you you mentioned impact before. I want I wanted to ask you about uh, how you look at your impact. Just a quick sort of side question. Hopefully, it's a quick one. I was just curious in terms of like those sort of stages of sort of scoping out and then piloting and things. I don't know if this varies massively from one project to another, but I was just wondering in terms of like the cost of those different levels, like when you need to go out and secure some funding to to do that initial bit of scoping and then do that sort of research and that piloting. Is there a, a sort of a range of what those are like you know each time it's going to cost like 5 10 20k whatever to do the scoping or is it just different every time there, there is a bit of a ballpark so at the very first stage we have um the idea bit that is mostly done in-house and we were our last round of fundraising to borrow from um the startup world when we'd gone to our private supporters to see this is what we do that resulted in us securing funding for between two and three years to have a have a post. So we had someone in-house who we've kind of put into that role. And her role is to look at evidence and innovation. That's her job title. So she can just uh, okay. scope out those ideas and decide what's going to the next point. Um, at that next point, that's where the money can sometimes come in. And it's usually, now with costs the way they are, it's usually in the ballpark of about 10K. We will try to... At that point, we've identified right, who's the potential partner or who's 
we may be scoping out the partner. So that 10K, not all of it, we, we will go to someone and ask for that money, but a lot of that will go back out because we've gone to experts within the field to help us to, to flesh out what this might be. And then, and if you think about it, like a pipeline, that first bit is quite full. If it's something like a sausage factory, we've got lots of things going in and actually not many of them get through to the next stage for the, the 10K, can we scope it out? And then we have an even smaller number that then go into piloting. And piloting is when we would usually be going to a trust or foundation because you'd be looking for what, however much it's going to cost to run the project. We also do have quite a substantial line for evaluation that we, we build in because the whole point of Winning Scotland is to be sharing our learning. So a lot of our learning before was done in-house. We did have some external, but over the last couple of years, we've really tried to get other people to mark our homework because one thing that's really tempting as a charity is because you know that what you're doing is good. So it can be easy to sort of, when you're doing your own evaluations with the best will in the world, that can be the lens that you look at it through. So we always try to, to bring someone external in to help us just keep our head raised in the right direction so we can genuinely say what was good about this? What were we learning from this? Because it's not that we want to carry on doing it forever. We're learning and that learning phase, that pilot phase might take two years or it might take six years. Like It depends how many iterations you have to do. We've got a project just now that's a community-based project in North Glasgow and Perth. And it started just before COVID. And actually, we're now at a phase where we'd kind of thought it was getting towards the end of, right, we're going to hand this over to somebody. What we've learned is it needs to go to be changed again from the evaluation that we've done. Um, so yes, in answer to your question, there are rough figures attached, but it's not concrete set in stone but it's enough for us at the start of a year to kind of figure out what we think we need yeah cool and that's a much smarter way of doing it getting a few years of funding to have a post to do that scoping whereas i was thinking you were having ideas and picking up the phone and saying can we have five grand to look into this each time which would have been a rubbish way of doing it so you touched on the sort of external evaluation support a little bit there so you're obviously using that for some of that sort of learning around around those programs and when you're looking at trying to think about the impact you're having as an organization what's what's been your approach there have you developed a particular sort of framework or way of working with that or how are you going about that and how, what do your what do your sort of funders and supporters ask of you how do you how do you talk to them about the impact the work's having yeah like a lot of charities it's something sometimes we're responsive so we'll have particular funders who want to know particular things interesting in scotland i think some of the requirements are maybe a bit more nuanced, which is interesting. Um, I have to say it's not me that does most of this. I've got brilliant people in my team. Um, when I'm thinking about impact, my focus is always on so what. I remember in my interview for this job and we were they were talking about the numbers, the numbers of teachers, the numbers of people. And that's what I asked. I was like, I really want us to be able to answer that so what question. So we have started to look at longitudinal research. Again, before I started, a piece of work was started, which we just recently had published. And it was Bristol and Cardiff universities looking at the long-term impact of the teacher training that we've done. And that is really useful because what we found from that is we thought that that program was to help kids' attainment, particularly in relation to the poverty-related attainment gap. And it did. And the short-term data was showing us that the kids who were in the classes of these teachers were, the teachers were saying, yes, these kids have come on more than I would expect, or these are the improvements that we're seeing. And we've got a whole database of case studies from teachers. But the longitudinal impact that was found by the academic study was that the positive impact on teachers' well-being and mental health was statistically significant. 
And that's really important because we know that we have a crisis in teaching. We know that teachers are leaving the field, that they're stressed, and that particularly early career teachers are not sticking around. So when teachers are saying, even a couple of years after the course, yeah, actually that course helped me to rediscover my love of learning. And I remembered why I was doing it and it gave me more of an incentive. And one of the questions that we ask teachers before they start learning with us is, do you think there will, I think there will be some kids who just don't get it no matter what I do. And then at the end, we ask them the same question. And something like half of teachers think that there's some kids in their class who will just never get it. And I think, God, could I go to work in a place where I thought that regardless of what I did, half the people that I was trying to help would never be helped. I think I, I would find that really frustrating. And actually, by the end of the programme, what teachers are saying is that, you know, 90 odd percent of the teachers are saying, no, actually, I think I do make a difference and I can make a difference to every single child in my classroom. So that's why the evaluation to me is really important. I talked to my team about that. And I took this from someone who talked about um, profit and loss and cash flow and and um, the difference between vanity and sanity. And I think it's the same with evaluation and impact. You can have that for vanity to be like, look, and actually on our website, we do have some lovely numbers like that, that just give you that, right, here's an organization that, that does stuff. And then the more difficult picture is the, what difference does it make? And sometimes that's just for internal use, but we are trying to be much more open about what we're doing that works and what we're doing that doesn't. And that partly comes from having this funding mix because we're not dependent on just one funder because we don't have any reason to be secretive about it. So we're not doing it completely right yet, but that's something for the next 18 months to two years, the journey that I want us to be on. First of all, figuring it out internally. And then how do we share that in a way that helps other charities to learn, also attracts the right people? Because there'll be some people that might look at that, those learnings. And our, we're a growth mindset organisation. That's what we're supposed to do. Some people might look at the learnings that we're sharing and go, oh, well, I'd never give money to them. But that's OK, because there'll be someone else who's like, yeah, I want to give them my money because they're not just going to be you know, doing the same thing over and over again. So the impact framework that we've developed, we're developing, the board have had a say, the staff team have had a say. We're now pulling it together into a, a framework and then we'll go to some of our external stakeholders and external partners to see, does this sort of make sense to you? And then we'll start using it because the things that we are good at, and it's the same as a lot of charities, is I call them the happy sheets. How many people came? Who said that they liked it? Do you think that it's going to make a difference to you? That self-evaluation piece. And that's really important. But more important is that secondary thing. So we've got our impact framework that's coming. We've got our life cycle. And the third piece that we're working on is how do we include the voice of young people? And what we've decided, because our work is all for the adults who are most influential on young people, and we do co-design all of the stuff that we deliver with social workers, with teachers, with sports coaches. We work with them to create something for them. And funders will often come and say, how are you including the voice of young people? And we kind of, I want to avoid tokenism. I want to avoid saying, well, we've got a, and I'm not saying these are all tokenistic, but we've got a young person's board or we've got a young person's representative on our board. Because ultimately, if a young person thinks that the way that we are training the teachers, for example, isn't right, but the teachers think it's right, and we think it's right, and the other experts think it's right. You know, there's a difference between lived experience and skilled, you know, trained experience. And I think that they're both valid. So we are working just now to figure out, well, how can we include the voice of young people in our impact and working out, because charity is all about like, what's the difference that you're making. And what we've kind of landing on is that the role of young people will be to help us in that mission and vision piece, helping us to understand what that really means and if we're doing it. 
So not necessarily about the detail of each of the different programmes, but actually are we travelling in the right direction? And I think having the three pieces together will allow us to look at what we're doing, why we're doing it, and if it's working. And as I say, that's something that we're just sort of towards the start of the journey, maybe towards the middle. But uh, yeah, let's come back in a couple of years and see how, <laughs> how it's working. Oh, yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, I don't think it's something that you get to the end of and you're like, right, we've nailed it now. I think it's a, an ongoing process of learning and evolving, isn't it? Yeah. So let's go back a little bit then, because this is, I think, your first role in a charity, really. So it's your first CEO role and first role in a charity, because you've gone from that business background to working in the sort of social enterprise sector and then into this role. So maybe you can reflect a little bit on that that sort of experience from changing sectors, a bit of kind of what, yeah, maybe start off with what that experience was like making those sort of couple of changes. Yes, it's interesting because in Scotland, 75% of social enterprises are charities, but they identify quite differently. They Mm. identify themselves as social enterprises. And that was my introduction because I had worked mostly in the private sector, mostly in business for good type businesses, working in education. I had done a bit in the public sector. I'd worked in university and I'd worked abroad. I worked in China. I had my own business for five or six years, uh, a retail business that I was working. I was running basically as a social enterprise, but I'd never heard of social enterprise. But I was running it as an ethical business and I was selling a lot of wigs and hair extensions. So, for example, if I had customers with cancer and alopecia, I wouldn't charge them or give them a heavily discounted rate. But I was just paying the money and I was like, oh, God, I don't know about social enterprise. I could have got a grant to do that. Um and I had a night where trans customers could come in without, you know, people gawping at them and stuff. So I, I was trying to run that business in an, an ethical way, but running a business, it was very, very onerous, very time consuming. I found I loved the customer side of the business. I loved like designing new products and things. But when I got married and had my daughter, I had been wanting to work in the charity sector for ages. The only reason I started my own business was because I'd moved back to Scotland and I couldn't get a job. In the, in the charity sector and I had lots of experience in related not related fields but I could see the, the relevance often I would get interviewed and I never got the job and the person who got the job always worked for a charity charity sector can be quite insular and I think that's often because boards are quite risk averse so they'd like to have someone who's done exactly the same job in a very similar organization and you see that when you look at the appointments mm. But it makes it hard for new entrants. So I got into this because there was a social enterprise in Glasgow, very close to my heart. They're called VoiceOver and they provide translation and interpreting services. And the money that they make goes into supporting refugees and asylum seekers. And they were advertising for business person to come and run the social enterprise because they had someone running the charity. And I read the job description and I was like, oh, my God, that could have been written for me. Like, that's perfect. And I got the job. And I did have to take a substantial pay cut to, to start in that role, but I, I loved what we were doing. Um, I just thought, well, let, let me try, let me see what I can do. And then I have made quite a few leaps in that period. Um, so then I went to work for a big organisation here in Scotland that provides support to social enterprises. They had given us support when I was at the little one, voiceover. So then I went to work with them partly marketing, partly doing business advice to other social enterprises. And that was interesting because I was working with a team of business advisors who were all really brilliant, mostly men at the time, really brilliant men. Usually, they might not like it if I say this on on a podcast, but 15-ish years older than me, really experienced. And I felt like, "What, what am I here for? Like, what can I add value to? And one of them, I didn't go around saying, woe is me, like I'm not that sort of person, but I did second guess what I could add. 
And one of my colleagues said to me one day, well, you're the only one here who's ran your own business. And that just gave me such a lot of, okay, actually, I do know what I'm talking about. I haven't got loads of experience working with lots of businesses. I've never advised businesses before, but actually I have run my own one. So I did that very happily, got to travel a lot, got exposed to the social enterprise sector. I joke that it was like an MBA in social enterprise because I was working with so many. And we were basically the first port of call. If anyone in Glasgow wanted to set up a social enterprise or they were running a social enterprise that had gone into trouble, they would come to us. But through that, I got to see lots of different types of organisations and didn't and we were a charity ourselves. So we were a charity, but we had enterprise activity. And I didn't ever really want to go and work at a charity. I couldn't see that that, and I think my partly because my view of what charity was, was quite naive. It was that you go out and you ask people for money. And I just didn't ever, like, that's not something I was ever comfortable with because my background was earning money. Like you'd go out and you'd earn money to do stuff. And I'm not, actually now I think going and asking people for money is harder. And um, I still think that, I've always thought that going out and asking, kind of prove to people who don't know what you do that they should be investing when you know that it's something that the world needs more of. So that didn't appeal to me. Having to maybe have like a really brilliant idea, but not being able to do it till you had someone who was going to pay you for it. And having a board, my I was on a board, I was on the board of Social Enterprise Scotland. I'm now on a different board of an organisation called Sacro. Boards can make or break an organisation because a board can make or break the leader of the organisation. And if you as, an, as a leader are spending the vast majority of your time trying to persuade, cajole your board or their You've got a board who's really disinterested and unavailable often. Like you've got people on boards who just don't have time. And if you're a small organisation, you actually need your board to do more than turn up to board meetings. On the opposite end of the scale, you might have a board who is has nothing else to do in their life. And all they want to do is get in about all the books and why are you doing this and why are you doing that? And I was just like, why would anybody put them through that? Like I would, much, people would say to me, would you set up a social enterprise yourself? And I was like, no, actually, I would do what I did last time, which is set up a business that was mine and then do good things with it. And the reason I applied for this job, I'd gone to work at Scottish Government and mental health and well-being, which I knew nothing about, but apart from my own mental health, what we were doing at Scottish Government was rolling out mental health support for young people in the community space. And what that means is it's not CAMS, so it's not the kids who are really desperately needing help, and it's not the universal stuff that you get in school it's that in between stage and the idea with this investment which predated covid but it started during the covid year just the way that everything takes so long is that if you can catch people young people in the middle before they need to cams actually you can often redirect them you can support them at the right time you can give them support that is relevant to their needs and it stops cams and actually we're starting to see some benefits to some local areas who have done that really well and their cams areas don't have waiting lists so if we can do more that'd be wonderful but what I could see there was that we were still using sticking plasters in a lot of the cases. And when I saw Winning Scotland come up, and I'd never heard of them before I saw the job advertised, I thought, my goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful if you could go even further upstream, if you could help kids to be... And I, as an adult, I got divorced and things that I hadn't planned in my life. I spent a hell of a lot of money on counselling and therapy and trying to figure out how I dealt with you know, challenge and change. And I remember reading about what Winning Scotland did. And I was like, oh, my God, I wish I'd had this because it would have saved me a fortune, actually. Um, so the idea of helping children and young people, as I say, back to the beginning, we should be making the world a bit less hard if we can. But actually, if something bad happens to a young person, whether we as an adult think it's a big deal or we don't think it's a big deal, it doesn't really matter. Is that child, that teenager going to go back to square one every time? Or can we help them so that they get knocked down and they go back to square two? 
So then maybe the next time they get knocked down, they go back to square three. And then eventually you get it so that they're going back to square nine. And then maybe they're not going back at all. They're taking the time. They're absorbing what's happened. They're figuring out. Like I don't, I'm not asking for toxic positivity or people to be in denial, but they are able to, yeah, just a little bit quicker, figure back out who they are and get back onto the path that they wanted to be in. So it was the the charity that appealed to me. And I remember talking to the recruiter and saying, well, I don't think I'd, I want to be, I don't think I could be a CEO yet, but I'd like to go through the process so that I can see that in five or six years' time, when I am quote-unquote ready to be a CEO, I know what it's like to be interviewed for a post. And then I got it. You know, really unexpectedly, I got it. And that was brilliant. And to be in an organisation that espouses growth mindset is really the best place to learn to be a CEO, because I've never felt that I have to pretend to know more than I do. I've never felt that anyone expects me to be perfect and to get make the right call all the time. And I have to role model being comfortable with my mistakes. And it's hard, like I'm not saying it's easy, but because of the kind of organization that we are and the kind of things that we teach other people to do, I have to role model that. I have to be that sort of leader myself. So, and I found my board brilliant, actually. My board are um, great. There was five when I started. We've got seven now. My chair is the founder, which again, like if someone had said that to me in the beginning, I would have been like, oh, that's a red flag. You know, you're going to find it really difficult. And our chair, Sir Bill Gamble, he has done so many things that you could like look him up online. He's done so many things. But actually, when you talk to him, he says that winning Scotland is his legacy. And that's a huge responsibility. But what he's done, he's given me this really precious thing and he trusts me to run it. He's there if I need him. And sometimes we're in contact quite frequently and other times, you know, we have our monthly meetings and that's it. And he says this, he says he employs good people and he trusts them to do their their job. That's how he's been so successful in the business world. So that's a real lesson for me and how I look after my team. Sometimes I get it right, sometimes I don't. But the board are great. We've recently are trying something different with our board because they're so, they have so much value to offer. And I felt that our board meetings were, A, we were trying to cram too much into the board meetings. Seeing the board at the board meetings and then in between in an ad hoc way, we might phone a particular board member and say, we're doing this. We've got this HR issue. Can you help with that? Or we, we want to have a particular conversation with this person. And I just felt that maybe there was something that we could do that would give more value to the board members without taking up too much of their time. We're not big enough to have subcommittees. and I actually don't want subcommittees because then you're just creating paperwork and all that nonsense. So what we were trialing, like a lot of winning Scotland, but we're trialing it and we're seeing it at the moment. We're just going into this new phase where we're going to have board champions who are a bit like a mini subcommittee in their own right. So based on what we need as an organisation and the interests of the board member, I've asked each board member to champion a particular area. So for example, we've got someone who's going to be looking after our communications. We've got someone who's looking after Planet Youth, that big Iceland project. In fact, two people are looking after that because it's huge. Um, We've got someone else who's supporting on the development of the impact framework and someone who's supporting with a review of our education um, piece. So the idea is that the board member, every six weeks or so, will meet with whichever internal person and the staff team is looking after that and will be a cross between a coach, a confidant, a critical friend, And my hope is that the next board meeting, and we trialed it last time and it worked quite well, that the board member will give the update on that topic. So we have our our board papers, which we last uh, recently moved to a briefing pack. So we used to do the traditional thing where every item on the agenda had a paper behind it. 
And then it just got really messy and very crowded at the board meetings because we had to get through everything. So what we've been doing recently is we've got a briefing pack, which we assume everyone has read and we don't go through every paper. And we then have the agenda, which is here's the things that I need you to make a decision around. Here's the things that I want information on. Much easier for the board to see the, the value. And then obviously there'll be some board members who might say, well, this was in the briefing pack and it's not on your agenda. And we can add that in. Like We want to have the best of both worlds. But at the last board meeting, the person who's looking after Planet Youth on the board, she did the update. And I came in, like I chipped in to answer questions, obviously, because she doesn't have the operational level of detail and she shouldn't. But we co-wrote the paper. She was the one who led the conversation. And I think what it does is it gives the board real assurance that somebody on the board knows about oh, yeah. something. In the same way that you often see this with treasurers. We don't have a treasurer on our board, but it works negatively, I think, with treasurers and that nobody else takes any notice of the finance because they're like the treasurer's doing it. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of build on that, but in a really positive way. So for everyone on the board to go, right, well, we know that David is looking after, not looking after, that's that's the wrong phraseology, but David's the champion for, for comms and engagement. And that's what he does. So if David comes to the board and says, chatted with the team a couple of times over the last couple of months, this is what I think that we're doing well. These are the things that they're going to work on. To the rest of the board, that gives them a level of assurance and they each know that everyone has that. And for the, the staff team, it means that it's not, only me that has the relationship with the board, which I'm really excited about that because our board are so good. I'm excited to see for the board to see how brilliant the staff team are and for the staff to realise, oh, actually, yeah, that board, our board are human and they do, they do get it. So I'm sure there'll be a, a storming and norming phase where maybe the board get too involved in some of this, the staff stuff. And there might be some bits where the dynamic of maybe the staff person might think, oh, I should do that because the board member said that it's a good idea. So there'll be that bit where we figure out, no, actually, you're you're the staff team. You're the one that makes the final call. The board person is there as an extra resource. And that we'll need to figure that out. But um, you can tell by my voice, like I'm excited by that because I think that charities and our charity in particular, we're tr- that all charities are trying to do really big things with never enough m- not money and never enough time. If we stick to the way that we've always done it and boards, let's face it, were started in a different society, but boards charity boards or other boards are built for middle-aged middle-class white men and a lot of it is about risk and having someone to blame when things go wrong and actually that's such a terrible way to to do things let's look at this as an opportunity that we have so i'm excited to see if this um, works for the board which it has to because they're all busy people and if it works for the staff team and i think we could end up with something that's much stronger than the sum of all of its individual parts oh yeah it sounds good where do you like ideas like this? Where where do they come from? Are there particular like resources you use, or are there sort of books where you've picked things up from, or what are some of the sort of things that you might recommend for other leaders that you found useful? So one is I think being confident in your own experience. I used to jokingly refer to myself as a jack of all trades up until about three years ago, actually, and then actually that's become a generalist. You know that the fact that I have not had a linear career path means that I've got lots of ideas from lots of different places. And it also means that my network is really broad. So I am speaking to people doing lots of different jobs in lots of different sectors. So I'm able to get ideas from those different places. And I love that. I mean, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. And I like, there might be something about, I don't know, that has got no surface relation to what we're doing. But I'm curious. I'm a curious person. So I like to go down rabbit holes. Um, I do read a lot. I um, listen to a lot of podcasts. And again, trying not to stay in my lane, I probably know, still know less about charities than probably most other charity CEOs, but I've got people in my team who know that. 
who can keep us right around obviously there's basic things around the government governance that I'm I'm now aware of but generally we've got people in the team who keep us who know more about the charity sector I find a coach I've got a coach who's really useful because that thing about how we use the board better that came from a conversation I was having with her about just some general ideas that were not anything specific or articulate and over the course of like a session and a half, we've kind of fleshed out what that would be. I'm also the kind of person that talks out loud that sometimes gets me into trouble because I do my thinking aloud. So I'll sometimes go to my team with a half-formed idea. And then by the time it becomes something, it's completely different. Usually that's a positive because it means people have been involved in the evolution of the idea. But sometimes people can go, how did you get from here to here? Um, if I haven't kind of included them all the way, but co-production is a total charity buzzword, but that's just the way that I've always been, just kind of asking people, sense checking. And I think it comes from being in a business background. There's no point in spending time on something if there's not a market for it. So uh, why would you not go to your market, whatever that market looks like, um, before you even start? And um, I have done programmes that I found useful. I was fortunate enough when I was at Scottish Government to get to do Brene Brown's Dare to Lead program which was really helpful and then I did something that built on that called Remarkable Women which was a full year long program for women who it wasn't actually just for leaders it was for women who just wanted to live a more well-rounded life that they were in charge of so that's been really helpful and I do a lot of self-reflection so this is as an example on my 40th birthday which was not that long ago um, I got all my friends around and we had a nice food and a um, few glasses of wine and did vision boarding. So sat there and stuck bits of paper on and the kind of lives that we wanted to live. So I do spend a bit of time thinking about how I'm reacting to something as a leader and is, is that what's best for the organisation. So broad, I, I'm not being very specific, but yes, broad reading, curiosity and trialing things so something else that we've brought in recently to winning scotland is i'm calling it bubbles i'm not even going to go into what it is but it's based on something from the tech space that you don't have hierarchical structures and you don't have silos but you'll have i don't even i can't remember what they call it's a heliographic something or a heliocentric um, model something like that where you have project teams and you have people who work so if you're if you're a, a tech company you've got like we've got five different projects in the pipeline and these people are working and then people move between the bubbles depending on what's happening and there was something in there that i thought that might be relevant to us but it's obviously designed for bigger companies and that's where i was like well how could we adapt it and doing lots of reading around it and then coming up with something that that seems to fit for us so um yeah, and talking on my LinkedIn, one of the things it says is I like talking to interesting people doing interesting things. And that's where not only some of the ideas, but actually practically how does it work have come in. Yeah, good. Thank you. That's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think lots of lots of people have spoken to. Coaching's definitely come up a lot uh, when I've asked that kind of question. And also, yeah, lots of things from outside of the sector and that sort of broader reading and networking and learning and, and curiosity rather than necessarily a kind of charity leadership type course yeah that's definitely come up a lot less than that sort of broader learning i guess we better start to wrap up is there anything else that you particularly want to say to the listener anything we've missed out anything any message that you would want to share i think i would just ask people who are if anything I've said has resonated, to reach out to me on LinkedIn, because as I say, I'm, I'm always interested to speak to people. And if anyone thinks that there might be a connection or a partnership, then then to get in touch. I've enjoyed listening to the other episodes of your podcast, so hopefully this has been useful to somebody somewhere. Right, yeah, I'm sure it will have been. Uh, so we'll, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn 
page so people can find you. Um, or if you're searching, uh, Zara is spelled Z-A-H-R-A, Zara Hedges, a win in Scotland. And yeah, we'll put we'll put the links to those bits and pieces that you mentioned on the webpage as well. So thank you for joining us. I'm sure everyone will find it really interesting. I know I did. And yeah, please reach out to Zara, reach out to me if you've got any comments, questions, et cetera, on the podcast. Thank you for your time. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Charity Impact Podcast. Thank you for giving us your time and attention. I know how precious a resource time is. I hope you enjoyed the show. If I could trouble you for a further two minutes of your day, I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a review on your podcast player via ratethispodcast.com slash charity. You can engage with us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Charity Impact Podcast or search Charity Impact Podcast in your browser to find our website where you can email me directly and you can subscribe to our email list for the opportunity to submit questions for me to ask upcoming guests. You can also find all the show notes and the previous episodes and links to resources that our guests have recommended there. Until next time, take care and thanks for listening.